DealQuest listeners, I am so excited to have Dom Einhorn on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Dom, you've had so much experience in terms of deals and, you know, in the past and what you've done in your own companies and, and the incubator that you have now. Tell people uh, a little bit about what they're going to hear on the upcoming episode of DealQuest. Thank you, Gory, for having me. I think what you can discover is that it's not necessarily uh, a great idea to build your business in a large metropolitan area or a big city. Uh, in fact, if you believe that the internet is the great equalizer, we should probably be able today to build our next startup on the moon or soon on Mars. <laughs> so if I take you to the southwest of France, it's probably not that much of a stretch. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So we're definitely going to hear about that. And then, um, you know, Dom uh, sold uh, two, well, more than two, but we talk about two companies in the past. And uh, we talk a little bit also about um, how you help companies, but also just in terms of investment in general, right? And what, uh, you know, what companies need to look for and how they should position themselves. Yeah, correct. Uh, You know, obviously what we do is we help, uh, we incubate and accelerate startups in the technology space, but we also work hand in hand with angel investors and angel networks that are looking, you know, for the right type of startup to invest in. And one of the problems we're looking to solve is to, you know, uh, fix the gap that you still, uh, that's still very present today between investors looking to fund startups and startups looking for funding. So folks, if you're interested in hearing more about that or how Dom had uh, at least two people, two companies come to him uh, looking to buy the uh, two of the companies that he sold without even, uh, you know, shopping them or pitching them, just check out uh, Dom Einhorn's episode on DealQuest. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. A serial entrepreneur with multiple startup exits under his belt, Dom Ihorn created the first online art auction back in March of 1996, which was acquired by one of the largest auction sites in the world five months later. He then created PowerClick, a digital marketing agency with 500 plus advertisers as clients. The agency merged with a publicly listed company in the spring of 2001 in an eight-figure M&A transaction. Today, he advises and invests in a wide range of technology startups. A native of, uh, of Alsace, Dom speaks six languages and understands the importance of breaking down language barriers. The same philosophy applies to, uh, to his businesses. In 2018, he returned to France and settled in. Um, uh, you you got to help me with the pronunciation there, uh, Dom. Salah. Salah. Ah, Salah. Uh, with a single focus to build the world's largest rural incubator accelerator unicorn. And we're going to hear um, more about that. The digital startup ecosystem and angel investing represent Dom's true passion. As an investor, he has provided seed funding for over 20 technology startups. And as an entrepreneur, he has managed client campaigns with budgets exceeding $3 billion. 
delivered 7 million plus in sales leads and generated over 500 million in sales as a power affiliate. So listen, the rest of his, uh, you know, his, um, his bio is going to be in the show notes. Um, he, he's even founded a, a recent tech conference. But uh, as you know, you can see between the sale of his first company, the merger of a second company, the incubator that he runs, the investments he does, he is just a perfect guest for the DealQuest podcast. Dom Einhorn, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Corey. My pleasure. So um, before we talk about all this wonderful deal experience and what you're doing now, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is it probably wasn't, uh, you know, a serial entrepreneur and an investor and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, but, but you tell me, maybe I'm wrong. No, not by a long shot. Uh, growing up, I wanted to be like my dad. Uh, my dad was a pretty boring job, actually. Now in, <laughs> in hindsight, he was an employee of the French railways. He was an, an engineer for the French railways. That's who I wanted to be. I guess I just wanted to em emulate who he was. And uh, obviously, my trajectory was significantly different from his. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and what was your first deal of any type that you can remember? It could be something small when you were a kid or later with, as you're an adult, just whatever comes to mind. You know, it was very similar to a newspaper route, but for me, it was a magazine route. Uh, okay. And it was it was actually, uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of like what gave me an idea of becoming an entrepreneur, because we were, you know, donating all our time, uh, you know, as kids, I grew up in a Catholic family, my mom taught catechism for 56 years, and we were always asked to do these chores for everybody else, it seemed endless. And then at one point in time, there came this concept of this religious calendar, annual calendar, uh, for which we're getting commission. For every for every issue that we sold, okay, and I was I was working tirelessly day and night, and I outsold everybody else. <laughs> I love it. First time I was getting compensated for something, I was you know donating my time towards without actually earning a dime. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, so um, so you know uh, at some point that spark turns into uh, you know we talked about in your bio you were a serial entrepreneur, and then you create this online auto, uh, art auction. Um, actually, before we go there, why don't you just give people, we're going to circle back to it, but just give them, you know, the, just a, a minute on uh, what you what you do now, uh, you know, uh, where you focus your time, because I, I know you have a few things going on. Sure. A uh, couple of major focuses today, and they're actually aligned one with the other. Uh, back in 2018, I came back to France roughly two and a half years ago to launch Unicorn. It's Unicorn with a Q. My last name in German, Einhorn, means unicorn as well. So play on words, the uh -huh. dual, 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 dual play there. And uh, we're roughly 30 people today uh, on the unicorn side. And uh, we incubate and accelerate technology startups in the fields of artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, fintech, digital media, uh, slowly uh, agritech as well, because we are in the rural area. But uh, first and foremost, uh, I'm more an investor today than an entrepreneur. Uh, provide seed capital for uh, deals that I believe in and that deals that ultimately get incubated and accelerated via Unicorn. Great, great. All right, so now I wanna take you back to this uh, art auction company, online art auction company that you uh, created. First of all, you know the thing I noticed, it's 1996 and it's online art auction company, which is, uh, you know, I remember the mid nineties and, you know, the earlier yep. you know, the, uh, days of the internet uh, uh, before, of course, the bubble, um, you know, 
uh, burst uh, the first time. Um, and um, so you, you, you create this uh, uh, auto auction site, in fact, the, one of the largest in the world, and, and, um, and then you, you, you sell it five months later. I mean, that's a pretty quick turnaround. Um, talk to me about that sort of journey and experience was the speed of that, you know, somewhat, I mean, I'm sure it was related to your, your skill and all the great things you did, but it was also, uh, was it sort of related to the time and how hot the market was, uh, you know, talk, talk to us about the trajectory of that and how you, uh, prepped it for a deal. Were you shopping it? Did somebody come to you? How did that all come about? Sure. It was a very, very interesting story. So, uh, at that point in time, I'd say between 1993, when I first launched in the business in 1996, I had a lot of artists as clients, uh, painters, photographers, sculptors, and uh, they had one thing in common. They were all starving, including myself, right? So we <laughs> right, right. You know, were all starving artists. I was a starving, budding uh, digital marketer, entrepreneur. And the very reason why I decided to actually build the first online art auction is because I wanted to solve a fundamental problem. And that problem was the fact that I had these great artists that I always respected tremendously because I can't draw a hammer. So I've always been fascinated by art and I wanted to really help them get a name for themselves and actually promote themselves and, and sell some of their pieces. And on a one-off basis, that was very difficult. We were looking for something more scalable and I figured why not an auction? Why would you have auctions that are for some of them very successful in the offline world? Why can't we transpose that in the online world? We did. Uh, we spent about six months building the code. Uh, we launched one day. Uh, there was very little activity uh, for the first uh, two, two and a half months. And lo and behold, uh, one major magazine that used to be 300 pages thick back in the 90s and is a leaflet today came and did a report on us, uh, glorifying what we do and how innovative it was. And we went from uh, 150 bidders uh, to 20,000 in the span of a week. Wow. And uh, overnight, we ended up being in the art business, of which we knew nothing about, turned out, right? <laughs> we knew how to promote, we knew how to market, but we had no idea about fulfillment. So we were shipping art uninsured. We were shipping art on the glass, glass would break. I mean, talk about, again, we were up at three, four in the morning with orders flowing in and we sure. tried to fulfill to our best and it ended up being a, a nightmare on the logistics side. And uh, one day we got a knock on our door and uh, it, was, it was a virtual knock, it was an email at first. And uh, someone wanted to buy the database from us and take take the site away from us for for what was a nice, nice fee. And I figured, look, it's probably the perfect time to get that monkey of our back, make a few bucks and do something else. Love it, love it. So uh, so they approached you because you had gotten some traction, some, some press, that kind of stuff. Uh, was, was this a, a buyer that had that kind of logistics and infrastructure in place yeah. that the company needed? Yeah, very much so. They, they were very strong there. Our weakness was their strength. And vice versa, I shall say, they were early on in what they were doing, and they could certainly use, uh, you know, a lot of the a, a lot of the registered users that that we had that were very engaged in the, in our platform. And uh, as part of that structure, did you or any of your other major team members need to stay on for a period of time? Uh, you know, what, or was it just the, really the sale? Of the it database? was a six. Yeah, it was a six month. So it was primarily a sale. Right. Okay. So yeah, during the six month period of time, we did very little post the first two months. Once they had the the intimate knowledge of, uh, of the inner workings of our platform, it went very fast from there on. 
Yeah, so it was really just a six month consulting, whatever, to just make sure that transition. It was, was like, yeah, it was, yeah. it was, it was, a, it was a flipper. Yeah, yeah, love it, love it. Well, that's great. Um, so, any um, any lessons uh, that you uh, learned from that deal, or was uh, either you know positive or negative? Uh, what, 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 you know, I would, I, yeah, I would say the fundamental lesson I learned from that, which still stuck, sticks with me today, is whatever you're launching, make sure the product or service that you're developing provides a bona fide answer to an existing problem. Yes. I think that's very, very important because as a result of technology democratizing and demonetizing, you know, what I've seen, for example, is a dramatic shift and a major difference between the 90s and today is it would cost an arm and a leg to launch, as you know, Corey, in the 90s, unless you'd raise a half a million bucks or a million bucks, you had no point being in business. It's a technology business. My bandwidth bill in 1998 was $8,000 a month, and I used a thousand times less bandwidth than today, right? right? That's one example. Right. So what I see today, uh, mostly as an investor, is very often young entrepreneurs that by way of being passionate about what they do, tend to create the problem they ultimately intend to resolve. That's clearly not sustainable. We could have never done that in the 90s because it was just too darn expensive to right. go down that route, right? right? So you see a lot of these vanity business models that are popping up where you're sometimes wondering, what does this even do? Why do I need another social network, right? Why do, you, do I need another way to search? Because I'm very satisfied with the search results that Google provides me, yet you still have these, these companies that are popping up left and right that have no chance of survival, survivability whatsoever. So I think the biggest lesson is focus on solving a problem that's affecting a lot of people if you want to become a billionaire, help a, help a billion people and the rest will happen by itself. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, like, like, I, you know, I, I never wanted to be one of these guys who's like, well, back in my day, you know, like I try to like, you know, it's a, it's always evolving and, you know, and it's always changing in the benefits and detriments. Uh, yeah. But I do remember, I mean, in the mid nineties, I, I built out a new law office and I remember we were still, you know, I paid all kinds of money, tens of thousands of dollars to have the office wired and we had a server room and, you know, and, uh, and then when I, uh, in 2015, um, actually, no, I, I, I take it back. That was even 2005. It wasn't even the mid nineties. I mean, still in 2005, right? You know, you were 40, 50, 60 grand in and just, and just hardware and, and wiring for a small law office, right? You know, for- yep you know, for, for, you know, a space with eight offices. Um, and then in 2015, 10 years later, you know, it was five, 600 bucks a month in cloud programs and a couple of laptop computers. And, you know, yeah, you're <laughs> I mean, if, if you look at the late nineties, early two thousands, if you wanted to launch a, a, an e-commerce venture back then, you needed an Oracle server license. Right. Uh, that would set you back $32,000 per instance. We were running, we were running five at a time. So, I mean, unless you raise that cash, you know, there's no point being in business. It was the, the, the barrier of entry was extremely high on the financing side. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And so like the, uh, the great thing about today is that uh, it's really inexpensive to, you know, get into business. The bad thing about today, it's really inexpensive to get into business, right? It's, yeah. you know, it, it cuts both ways. I mean, you know, it's, it depends on what, what you're right. I mean, it's, there's, you know, there's not a natural economic gatekeeper, which, you know, which in ways provides more opportunity for more people, um, you know, uh, especially people that don't, let's say, come from means who have major connections up front, which is a great thing. 
Uh, but it also doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't create a natural vetting process. So you get a lot of these, uh, like you said, you know, vanity and other plays that really don't uh, solve any problems. Without a doubt. I think what you're seeing is obviously the explosion of entrepreneurship uh, across the world, you know, uh, especially in the tech space. The tech space in the 90s, unless you were in Silicon Valley, nobody would believe in you. You wouldn't even get right. backing. I had people, even though I was in LA at that time, people said, you, you need to move. In order for us to write your check, you need to be in the Bay Area. I was right. like, seriously? Right. I mean, is, is, isn't this exactly the opposite of what the internet is supposed to be? The great democratizer, <laughs> right? And, and what you're seeing today, you know, you see kids, my wife's Vietnamese. So when you go to Vietnam, you see Walmart-sized co-working spaces with kids building mobile games left and right, some of which are worth a billion dollars plus today. That's right. right? That's so, right. Completely. And it took a while. It took a while because, you know, even when it moved beyond, you know, beyond Silicon Valley, you had Silicon Alley, you know, in, 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 yeah. Mass in Massachusetts. And then you had a couple other, you know, in more recent times, you know, you got like Austin, Texas, some other places. But there were still these hubs where you almost had, had to be. And it's only I think it's only somewhat recently that that, uh, you know, and and even now you still hear people say you should you know be here or there. I think it's. I think we're still in, in the midst of that change where, where it's truly becoming more democratized and you, you know, and, the, and you don't have to be geographically in, in, in one of those ecosystems. Yeah, I think we're going back to the garage where it all started, right? <laughs> the, only, the only difference is that actually today it is happening in the garage. You know, the, the rest was glorified, you know, with HP, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, they probably spent the first week in the garage and then they moved to an office, right? <laughs> right. But they led us to believe that they were spending, you know, three or four years in the garage and ultimately they, they outgrew that garage. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, fall it's a fallacy to believe that was the case, but today that's it's right. actually the case. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and that's, and that's really, I mean, you're, you know, you're, you running a, a successful, robust incubator in rural France, you know, is, is, is a, is really a, you know, a, a symbol of that, right? No question. I mean, uh, one thing we didn't understand that was, mind you, before COVID, we did a, we did a study before COVID, commissioned a study, and we realized that 12% of young startup entrepreneurs wanted to move away from large metropolitan areas in order to launch their ventures. Mm -hmm. I was actually shocked by that number. I thought it would be two, three, 4%, and it was 12 before COVID. Today in Europe, I'm not sure what the numbers are in the US, probably not that much that far off, 38% of those same entrepreneurs want to operate outside of a big city. Yeah. I think we've, we finally come to the realization that number one, it can be done. Number two, it should probably be done. So if you take some examples, because at one point in time, between 2006, 2009, I had a large office in Panama in Central America with over 100 people. And two of my best engineers uh, two years ago moved, relocated to France. When they were still in Panama, they were commuting three and a half hours a day to and from the right. office. Right, right. To, today, they walk to the office, five-minute walk. They drop off the kids at school on the way to the office. They pick them up on the way home. They don't even realize what's happening. It's like, wow, I never believed this could, be actually, this could actually be done, right? Uh, I have probably six, seven employees that walk 30 to 45 seconds to get to the office. They live on the same street where the office is located. <laughs> and, what, and what you're seeing is obviously this dramatic increase in quality of life that also permeates the organization. People are just happier, you know, they're, they're, yes. they're refreshed. They're not, not as tired. They have a yes. smile on their face when before they didn't. And that was, it was really interesting to me, Dom, is that, you know, you would think that'd be more likely in the entrepreneurial community, and, and it is, but 
you know, you're seeing that even, you know, in, in very big companies, right? I mean, a lot of the, the big tech companies have basically said to people, you never have to come back to the office, you work remotely, yeah. you know, well, if you want. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then, you know, it's also becoming a, you know, a criteria. I mean, I, I um, you know, I, I, I interviewed, uh, I, I've been in discussions with some uh, attorneys uh, right now. Uh, uh, I'm interviewing a few people at, at, at an attorney in my firm. And, uh, you know, one of them said, um, you know, hey, uh, you know, I see, you know, you, you have offices in, in Manhattan and, and Rybrook, New York. That's a long commute for me. Um, I, you know, and he said, you know, I really don't want to go back to doing that. I used to do that. And like people aren't like they're much less um, afraid to say something like that. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> like people would not bring that up in a, you know, in a potential interview. And, and uh, of course, for me, I was able to say to him, listen, we know we didn't really promote it, but I've been, we've been working virtually for six years. We, we didn't miss a beat during COVID. He's like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like, that'd be great. It's, yeah, it's almost ironic, you know, back in the days, you know, people say you, you better show up at the office now. They're telling you exactly the opposite. You better stay home, <laughs> right? <laughs> whatever, whatever you do, don't come, don't, don't come to the office. Don't go to the office. Exactly. Um, so, all right. So let, let, let's go back now to talk about PowerClick because, uh, you know, that that is a, 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 another company you built uh, significantly. And then and then you had a um, an eight figure M&A uh, on that. So tell us a little bit about that company and the journey to, um, you know, to its uh, sale as well. Yeah. So that was a initially a company that I actually felt was failing at first because, again, we were very early on. We tried to build uh, digital marketing strategies, in, in particular customer acquisition campaigns between 1996, 1999, 2000, when for the first two or three years, we almost had no traction. And yes. at one point in time, I was ready to throw in the towel. And that's when things started accelerating a little bit. And then, as you remember, 99, you know, party like it's 99. There's a reason why <laughs> exactly. everybody says that. We literally exploded, right? We, we had a leg up on the competition. We had built some some campaigns that had gotten traction for some large financial companies, uh, financial services industry primarily, and then later on in the travel industry. And you know, we went from a handful of clients to 100 to 200, ultimately 500 companies. And we were growing so fast that at one point in time, uh, we literally had ran out of money. Uh, I sure. didn't pay attention, right? We were burning through cash and just growing, you know, by double digits every single month. And there was one Friday afternoon where I just realized, wow, I'm not going to be able to make payroll this weekend. Yeah. So like, okay, let me do some creative math here. I'm clearly going to be the one that's not getting paid. Yes. Let me see if I can pay everybody else. And I was still somewhat short. And then through my glass window, my secretary, because at that time we still had secretaries, right. waved, waved to me, pick up the phone because my phone was always on silent. So not to be interrupted. So pick it up. And on the other line, there was a gentleman who introduced himself and he said, you know, I'm such and such and I'm calling you today because I want to buy your company. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, uh, it's Friday afternoon, like 2.33 p.m. I'm like, sir, I'm not sure where you found out about me, but my company is not for sale. And he tells me everybody's for sale at right, for the right price. Just... That, well, that may be true, but I'm still not for sale. <laughs> right? Right. And he goes, I tell you what, young man, those are the exact words. I know where you are. You're in North Hollywood. I'm down by Long Beach. How about I send my driver up to pick you up and we talk about it? <laughs> I'm like, I tell you what, older man. I'm an adult. I have my own car. If you really want to meet, I'll drive down and meet you. Where are you? 
but it might take me a little while because Friday afternoon in LA it could take me two hours to go from North Hollywood to yeah. Long Beach. Sure. Ultimately, he said, you know, I'll be here until 9 p.m. Feel free to drop by whenever you want. I went down to see him. Uh, again, he said, I want to buy your company. I said, look, look, let's take a step back. What is it that interests you? You know, and they were building a, a, a device that was a famous cash transaction device that connected via USB to, the, to your computer back in the time that would allow card present transactions. You would actually swipe your credit card. Yeah, yeah. So they were very strong on the hardware side, but it did not have the merchant relationships, all of which we had. Uh, right? And we also had already some very early data at that point in time in terms of volumes of transactions, where they would come from, et cetera, et cetera. So now if I get it. It makes sense. Ultimately, I told him I was still not for sale. And then he did something that was very, very interesting. He opened up a drawer and he put a check in front of me and he goes, I tell you what, why don't you take this home? Think about it on the weekend and we speak early next week. And I was glancing at the check. And I said, yeah, tell you what, you have a deal. I'll talk to you on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> I rushed to the bank because I needed to make payroll. And then because it was a pretty sizable check, uh, it was pretty funny because I was a young, in my, in my 20s, in my in my early to late 20s, mid to late 20s, and uh, went to the tel teller at back then CalFed, California Federal, yeah. which doesn't exist anymore, merged later on Washington Mutual and uh, became Chase. And I handed him this big check and the uh, teller gives me the roll of the eyes, walks back to the, uh, to the uh, branch manager. He gives me the roll of the eyes and he comes up to the window and he goes, I'm sorry, we can't clear this entire amount today. He said, I don't need the entire amount. How about 10, 20,000? <laughs> so they cleared 10, 20,000. I made payroll and ultimately wow. I sold them the company six months later. Wow. Um, so, so there's so much in that. I mean, the first thing is just the general entrepreneurial lesson where, you know, I'm, uh, you probably see this with some of the startup entrepreneurs that you incubate now, whatever, where, uh, you know, especially, you know, first time around, uh, they don't usually think about the, the issue of running out of cash when things are going well. They, they focus on the issue of running out of cash if they don't do well, right? But people, you know, like uh, especially tech companies and other industries where there's fast growth, um, you know, it's so easy to underestimate uh, the need for capital when things are going well and the difference between profit and cash flow. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's absolutely, absolutely critical. So if I, you know, if I remember back then, I would take anything that would drive revenue, I would, I would bring on. Yeah. Uh, I was young, I was, I was naive, and I wasn't, today I'm, I'm doing the exact opposite. I'm turning down 9.9 .9 deals out of 10. Uh, I'm looking for profit margins first and foremost, because I've been bitten by that snake in the past. I don't look at top line revenue at all. I just look at pure operating margin. I look at, uh, you know, mar mar margin in general, first and foremost. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other, uh, no question. And listen, we've, we've all sort of, you know, go on that learning journey and, you know, and, uh, and, and you know, and, and, and figure it out. Um, uh, the other thing that I heard, you know, in both of your sales, which were really interesting, is that in both cases, the buyers came to you. And, um, you know, for me, that's that, that's a great lesson, right? Because, you know, I just um, I just uh, did a, an episode of the podcast with uh, Dr. Sabrina Starling, and we were talking about something in a very different context, but the principles apply. She, she has a new book out talking about, you know, how you hire A players and getting team in place. And we talked about, you know, we tied it into deals on how important, you know, uh, 
building a great team and be able to scale and creating enterprise value. But um, one of the things that she said is that, you know, the best companies don't uh, start looking for people when they have an opening, because then you're going to get all the people who, you know, don't have mostly don't have jobs and are on the job boards or whatever. And not that some of those people may not be good, but the, the ratio, you know, of success is less high because A players tend to leave one opportunity for another. They usually don't have, you know, they're much less likely to have a gap in their employment. Um, yeah. So, you know, she was talking about the fact that um, you, you've got to always be out there building relationships, you know, uh, having the pipeline open, even when you don't, even when you don't need somebody so that, you know, uh, one, you be, you know, you become attractive Two, you have the relationships and three, you're not, you know, in sort of a desperate position, you know, similarly with companies that are looking to either raise money or get acquired, um, you know, if, if you are, I mean, you happen to, <laughs> frankly, get a little lucky there, right? On the day you couldn't make payroll, somebody came in. And, uh, uh, but, but, but in a way, I mean, like the timing was fortuitous and it seems lucky, but what wasn't lucky, what was underlying that is that you built something that had value. It might not have you know, um, fully monetized in the marketplace yet, but you had that access that they were looking for, right? You, know, you had a piece uh, of value in the marketplace that an acquirer not only would, uh, you know, was valuable, but they actually sought you out for that. And, you know, you know, it was similar in your first company, right? So to be able to build something up front that um, is attractive to others, as opposed to, uh, you know, as opposed to having to be out there shopping desperately for a buyer or money when you're, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're desperate, you know, is, is a big difference in terms of the kind of deals you get done. Yeah, I agree. I, th I think that to build something with the intent of selling it or flipping it has never even crossed my mind. Right. In, in my in my life, so I, I, I'm I'm as an entrepreneur. If you're a true blue entrepreneur, you're looking at creating value, uh, and that value needs to be there, whether or not you ultimately pass it on to someone else or or, or not. Yes. So if you're actually focused on solving a problem, a fundamental problem, I don't think the question even comes up. Uh, there are always people out there that will be looking for you because they have that pain point, that friction point that I, that that you may have solved for them already. So I've never gone in and I've had all the other, other, other exits in my life. Never once have I gone out proactively looking for a buyer. I, for me, that actually feels like a flawed strategy. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Let me flip it on you a little bit here because you, you, know, you now mainly um, invest. Uh, in other companies and help incubate them. Um, and, you know, as a, uh, I mean, my guess is it's different for you. You're, you know, seed investor, early stage investor, you're helping incubate these companies. So you obviously know not only the level of risk, but you also, you know, are getting to know them in another way. You're not just bringing money to the table, you bring strategy yeah. and connections and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for some investors, especially let's say, you know, some VC funds and things like that, I'm not saying they don't bring other things to the table, but they also have certain other pressures to get returns on that investment, right? Because they have a fund and they got to, you know, they, they, the fund may, they close at some point, they promise their investors certain returns that sometimes create uh, some uh, pressure on entrepreneurs 
uh, to scale, to exit, to IPO. Um, you know, and so I want want to get your view in in the investment world about uh, you know that potential tension versus the idea of just being able to build value. Uh, you know, and uh, you know without worrying about some of these other incentives. Yeah, I think what you're seeing today, especially in the venture space, is that the uh, the problem that the, that they face is significantly different than the problem that I face as an angel investor, as an incubator, is because for them to make it worth their while, they have to be able to allocate a very, very large amount of capital. So you see them move in at the B, C, D, E level, right? Where historically they've came in much earlier, much earlier in the game. Uh, what makes us more nimble, and actually where I think that, to a certain extent, some of the larger VC firms are today missing, missing, missing the point and missing the real opportunity, is because some of these deals, actually a lot of these deals, take for example in the tokenization industry, in the in the, in the crypto space, they go from nothing to a billion in a matter of months. Yes. Right, because they scale so fast that, and they actually don't need the capital because they scale so fast because they're they're more nimble. It costs a lot less. They have great cash flow for some of them. Uh, you know, with earlier ICOs, yes, there were a lot of scams. Today, there are a lot of a lot of tokens, utility tokens or security tokens that are very successful. What you see in that space, for example, is by the time a VC would be interested in it, the deal is already gone. It's yeah. it's popped right the the only lick you're going to get off that deal with large money is if it decides to list publicly and yes. sometimes they don't need that either because technically speaking if they if they have a cryptocurrency they are already public in some shape or form right what we're able to do is we're able to zero in on our area of specialty with like surgical precision i'm not saying we're not going to fail right sure. but because we have an impact, a direct impact on the scalability of the deal itself, because we're providing it with this ecosystem, like this nurturing ecosystem where we can identify their weaknesses and their friction points and help them along the way, we can usually, hence the term incubator, we can usually ensure the survivability of that venture in the early stages. And then in the acceleration process, making sure they can scale very, very rapidly. Because most of these ventures, as you know, they fail very, very quickly and ever more so quickly today. You know, uh, Usually if you put some pressure on them, they will just crack within a few months, within three to six months, uh, because they don't raise a lot of capital like they used to. You know, So they burn a lot less cash and not having that cash at their disposal actually uh, precipitates either the success or the failure. Yes, yes. So uh, I'm sure some of the companies that you work with though do get to the point where they want, you know, where they're raising additional capital and they're going, you know, past the the, the seed uh, and uh, you know, friends certainly friends and family in the seed seed round and they're and they are going to more uh, you know larger VC type funds. What, what's, uh, you know, and I'm sure because of the role you play with the companies early on, not only providing some seed capital, but also the incubation and advice and connections, you know, you become a trusted um, um, advisor for many of these companies. Um, what, what do you, if they all go into that next round, uh, you know, what are some things, the things you, you advise them and, uh, you know, uh, to either look for and or watch out for? On the, on the company side or on the capital side? Uh, well, why don't you hit both? 
Okay. On the company side, we try to prepare them very, very early on for scalability. Uh, so we have a, a network and also it's interesting, you mentioned earlier the people coming to us. Uh, we, every day we have other seed funds, uh, with series A funds and, and beyond that come to us looking for deal flow. What companies do you have, where they are currently, et cetera. How quickly do they scale? Do you have anyone in the ARV space that's looking for additional capital that has existing, is beyond proof of concept, et cetera, et cetera. So there we make we put the focus very early on on the ability to scale, on the ability to build a solid team, because as you know, uh, in the early innings, uh, you may have a solo entrepreneur or, or a small founding team. And by definition, technology is scalable and humans are not. Right. So, you know, you have to really focus on, on, on teaching them what it takes to build a winning team. And it's not someone else who will be pat, you know, patting you on the back. Or if you have a founding team, as we so often have, of two or three highly skilled engineers, it may make sense that you start thinking of bring, by bringing on a VP of sales or VP of marketing, someone who could, you know, to bounce things off that counterbalances you and actually gets you ready for scalability when it comes time to really sell your, your product or your service to the masses. Yes. So I think what we're seeing is actually, you know, in this ecosystem is the, the skill set and the consulting that we're providing is, has been around for many, many years. If I remember going back to 1993, the first time I pitched an investor, I was very excited and I lost him within 10 minutes. He literally fell asleep in front of me because I was being too geeky talking about my project. And then I figured I might as well shut up and let him speak. And then he did the same to me. He was talking about funding rounds. I had no idea if he was talking about pre-seed series A, you know, and I had no idea at that time what, what, what that meant. And I think what you're still having today is you're having this gap between capital and startups. It's, le- it's less pronounced than it was 25 years ago, but it's still very much in existence. And I call it the expectation gap. And the easiest way to explain it is that entrepreneurs looking for funding are pitching on FM while the investor is listening to AM. Right. right? So there is a complete disconnect between one and the other. And what I do see is you have now, fortunately, more and more formerly startup technology entrepreneurs turned angel investors that are starting to bridge that gap via ecosystems like ours, via incubators, via VC funds, via early stage funds. And they, can, they have a tendency to move quick, right? The last deal, for example, the last deal that I, found, I funded, I funded within two hours. Wow. I've, ne- I've never done this before. It actually happened last week. It's in the blockchain industry applied to music. And I was absolutely stunned by how far ahead these guys were already uh, in terms of proof of concept. They had built a whole community of musicians waiting because obviously if you look at the music industry, you're in Los Angeles, you know something about it. Uh, Yes, it's been disrupted, wildly disrupted already since the 90s. But when you're really looking at record labels, signing on artists, independent labels, there is still a tremendous amount of friction and the artists themselves, some of which have massive networks of influence, uh, hundreds of thousands of followers on social media or even millions for some of them, they're still at the mercy of a label trying to sign them when they actually have the real power. Now with the right utility token, with the right currency, parallel currency, you know, decentralized finance is providing 
a real answer to these friction points where they no longer have to be part of this, for lack of a better term, scam. Yeah. Yeah. So this company was so far ahead that you would just like, oh, I'm I, I said, look, I, I was, I was in, a, I read through their white paper. I did some validation points. Uh, usually when, when a group of founders has every, every answer to every question I throw at them, a red flag was being raised. Right, right, right. In, this, in this case, it was exactly the opposite. I mean, everything I asked for instantly, I had a screen share in front of me, showing me how it worked and how they had solved the problem already. Love it. Love it. Love it. And I assume, you know, for most investors I know, in addition to obviously, you know, uh, testing out the concept, the idea, you know, where they are and whether it's technology or otherwise in terms of market advantage, um, you know, how much do you look at management uh, when you're when you're investing? So I, I look at management first and foremost, and it's but for probably for a different reason. Clearly, we all know that we need sound management in a company that's ultimately intends to succeed. But for us, it's even more more important because we actually live with these people right. Right? seven right. days a week. <laughs> so I haven't gone fishing in 25 years, but the first question I ask myself is, would I go fishing with that person? Right. And if, if the answer is no, you know, frankly, uh, you know, I turned 50 not too long ago. I don't have the patience anymore. I don't want to put through, uh, put up with this for you know, and and sit next to this person for the next five to seven years, which is the amount of time it, it usually takes to take a venture to become ultimately successful. Right, right. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, so as we as we uh, get to winding down here, uh, last couple of questions I'll have for you. Any other just um, things that come to mind in terms of, I mean, I know we've covered so much, we could talk for hours on this topic, uh, especially with your experience. Um, but anything else, you know, uh, you think would be valuable to the audience, maybe trends you're seeing right now or, uh, you know, things that are, uh, you know, yeah. anything that comes yeah. up? Yeah. Probably probably what I would leave them with is uh, a definition of failure that's probably different than, uh, than most, most definitions you've come across. Uh, yet the U.S. is probably an outlier when it comes to accepting failures. But if you go to other places in the world, Southeast Asia or, or even Europe, failure is almost like looked at as a, as a stigma. In yeah. fact, for many years in France, if you had a failed venture, you weren't able to open up a bank account for eight to 10 years. Now wow. that's for, fortunately gone now, but that gives you an idea on uh, you know, what actually failure meant and how it was looked upon. Uh, what I developed over the years is a philosophy where I actually embrace failure because I've realized in my own career that failure is nothing but a stepping stone to success. And I developed my own little rule that I call the rule of 36 over one. And that rule came about when I was early, my early 20s, moved to the US from France, and I started selling websites uh, before they were built. We were actually building the websites and selling them to businesses in a time when uh, selling websites was like selling ice to Eskimos. People right. didn't know what the internet was, and they thought it was a fad. I mean, you remember those times. Of course. I do. Why do I need a website, et cetera, et cetera. And it took me 36 real pitches, live pitches, to actually sell one of those darn websites. Ah. But I was failing 95 to 98% of the time, yet I sold that business for large seven figures a few years later, right? So uh, I was able to parlay what were overwhelmingly failures into ultimately a success. And I think we should not, we should not forget that because most, most people tend to give up way before them. Yeah, love that, love that. So people, uh, Dom, if people want to find out more about 
you know, the various things you have going on, uh, what's the best place for them to go to for more information? Easiest way is to go to unicorninkubator.com. It's unicorn with a Q. Uh, again, play on words on the unicorn, which is obviously a technology company that's worth a billion dollars US or more. And my last name, Einhorn, which means unicorn in German. My email is dom at unicorninkubator.com. I'm also the only Dom Einhorn on LinkedIn. That's D-O-M as in Mary. Einhorn is spelled E-I-N-H-O-R-N. You are the only Dom Einhorn on LinkedIn. Wow. Okay. That, um, yeah. yeah, yeah I, think, I mean, I mean, not that it's a you know, not that it's a super common name, but you you would never you would think somebody's gonna have it on LinkedIn, right? That's great. <laughs> That's great. What 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 great branding? Um, listen. So normally here I go to my last question, but 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 I'm gonna throw one more in here because. Uh, you know, in our prior conversation, you described to me where you are in Sarlat, France, and what it's like. And I and I can't let you get off uh, this uh, this this program. So I will have a last question after this. But I want you to give the audience a little uh, view of, uh, of of where you are uh, geographically. Yeah, yeah. So we're the southwest of France, halfway between Bordeaux, the wine region, on the west. We're two hours east of Bordeaux, and south of us is the city of Toulouse. Uh, known for Airbus primarily, uh, very very uh, developed in the in the tech in the tech space, uh, but the region where we're in is very unique. It's a small town of 9,000 people, roughly in the winter, with two and a half million tourists uh, during the summer months. It's the seventh most visited town in France, and it also has the highest density of medieval castles anywhere in the world. We have a thousand and two castles in a 25 mile radius. Wow. Amazing food. Amazing food, amazing wine, uh, river, river rafting, rock climbing. It's just pristine nature. Uh, in fact, for those of you who have seen the movie Joanne of Arc by Luc Besson, uh, it was filmed right here downtown. Uh, when they filmed it, the only thing they did is move the cars out. Everything else stayed the same. And uh, about eight, 10 months ago, Ridley Scott uh, filmed his last movie here called The Last Duel with uh, Adam Shriver and uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. They were here for a couple of months as well. I love it. I already, uh, listeners, I already told Dom that when, you know, uh, to expect uh, uh, me as a visitor once COVID is over and we can travel because it sounds like such an amazing place. My my wife has been wanting to get back uh, to south of France uh, uh, generally anyway. And uh, it just, you know, it just sounds uh, beautiful. And uh, and Dom tells me it is and, and uh, I uh, can't wait to go. Um, perfect so, to- yeah, uh, <laughs> perfect timing would be it would be in October when we're launching this startup Super Cup. No, there we go. That, that's right. Yeah. Good, so, good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, why don't you spend a minute on, on, on Startup Super Cup and then, and then I'll ask you my last question. Sounds good. So Startup Super Cup is a technology event. You can find out more at startupsupercup.com. It will bring together between 1,000 and 1,200 people. We're eight months out from the event. We have over 800 people pre-registered. Uh, roughly eight to 900 angel investors and funds, investment funds, between 100 and 120 technology startups at the seed stage or slightly beyond. And then very strong media representation, uh, financial media, startup media from the UK, from the US, from Canada, France, Germany in particular, and, and the rest of the world. Uh, it will be, you know, startups will be pitching in front of the investment community. There will be numerous prizes. Uh, incubation packages uh, being given away to specific category winners. Uh, The grand winner will also walk away with a unique trophy that will be a wood carving by a world champion chainsaw sculpture of a unicorn. Uh, 
So he'll <laughs> he'll produce it on premises. So it'll be very interesting. Oh, I love that. It sounds amazing. All right, I am I I'm I am seriously going to do my best to get there. Uh, assuming uh, uh, I I think we'll be able to be traveling by then. Um, so that's great. So Dom, my final final question on the podcast is about freedom, which is my highest value in life. And for me, it means everything from freedom for from all people from oppression and discrimination to um, you know, the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in, I don't know, 30 years. Um, uh, so what does freedom mean to you and how does it apply to your business in life? Yeah, I think you're hundred percent right. I think it's one of the reasons why I actually decided to move to a smaller place into a rural area. Uh, my definition of freedom, I, you know, is probably uh, peace of mind. I was looking for more peace of mind. Uh, you know, if you're a creative person, uh, or even if you're not a creative person and you want to be more creative, probably one of the easiest ways to do that is to figure out what's draining your mind and to get away from that. In my scenario, uh, since I was living in Los Angeles for upwards of 20 years, I wanted to get away from traffic primarily that was stressing <laughs> me out, from smog, from a certain type of people, sometimes all people. Yes. And uh, I, wa- <laughs> I wanted to be in a place where I could just enjoy life in general while still doing what it is that I love to do, which is to build businesses or help startup entrepreneurs build their own dreams. Love it. Love it. And you're doing it, man. So that's, that's awesome. Thank you very much, Corey. Dom Einhorn, thank you so much for being uh, an amazing guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.